listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week February 26 to March 2nd. Yes, we're in autumn already and it's disturbing. Uh, this week we spoke to Magda Sabansky. Oh, that's so funny because that's exactly how Jeff said it, her yeah, name yeah, as well. it was. It's a hard name to pronounce. It is. You'd think we'd know it by now. She's but a legend no. of Australian TV um, and it was really cool having her come in. We had a big long chat about things. We also, uh, oh, we had our usual uh, Trauma Tuesday segment and mm-hmm. this one was particularly traumatic for me. It may involve maggots. Yes. Gross. Uh, we also, um, oh, we talked about going to see Neil Finn and something very special that happened at the Zoo Twilight oh, show that yeah. he did. Very romantic. And also had a bit of a chat about just the small things in life that make your life better. Yeah, we had an interview with uh, writer and all-round good guy Corey Doctor about his novel Walk Away and about how writers can get paid. And we talked to Anthony Lowenstein about his new film, Disaster Capitalism. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The Barbecue is a new Australian film starring a huge cast, including Shane Jacobson, Julia Zamira, and Triple R's own John Van Gogh's. Also stars our next guest, a legend of Australian TV and film, Magda Subansky. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you for having me. Lovely to be here. <laughs> this is a very topical uh, film for, for Triple R, given that we've just had our own barbecue day on the weekend. What attracted you to this movie? Um, a really fun character was, to be frank, the, the, the main thing about it. Um, you know, she's this eccentric, um, rather brutal, as the Scots can be, Scottish butcher, you know, <laughs> as, as you do. Um, and Or as I said mistakenly, she's a Scottish butcher. I was like, oh, I'm still oh. on the same-sex marriage. <laughs> no, this is a different thing I'm flogging now. Um, uh, and um, she's the sort of like, you know, uh, basically Shane Jacobson plays this character, Dazza Cook, who's a barbecuing maniac, and but he... Um, poisons all of his neighbourhood and has to redeem himself through a barbecue bonanza competition and I'm like his Yoda, Scottish Yoda, <laughs> um, uh, guiding him through, you know, how to barbecue. Because I didn't realise that barbecuing is like such a thing. Is it? Yeah. They oh, have, yeah, I've watched oh, the Food Network. Network. Yeah. yeah, like the, I just think, you know, you have the gas bottle, which I'm terrified of gas bottles. I'm like gas phobic. But, you know, you, you, I just thought you just throw it on the grill and burn it till and then when it's got all charcoal around it, it's cooked. Um, but now they have smokers and barrels and this whole, it's all about what woods, your hickory, you know, you oh, name wow. it. Oh, it's very too fancy. Much. No, too <laughs> much. I just, as I said, just throw it on. When it's black, then you know it's good. When it's cooked charcoal black, it's done. Yeah. I um, thought your character was uh, reminded me a lot of... Uh, we Mary McGregor. Oh, well, I think it's just a Scots accent. Well, yeah. we, we Mary McGregor was always, you know, pissed and, and sort of cheeky and um, very flirty. Um, but, uh, no, this character's, um, you know, well, yeah, she's, you know the, the, no more of these crappity backyard barbecue, <laughs> you know, bollocks. Um, 
Uh, which is not how my my mum was Scottish, mm. um, but uh, that's not certainly not how my mother. That's, that's, <laughs> how, that's how they talk in Glasgow. Going, I'll do you, Jimmy. I'll heed you, heed but you. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so um, yeah, the, the character was originally written for a man, a Scottish man, really? and then yeah. they decided to just mix it up a bit. And and I suppose because I'm the go-to person, uh, I keep saying this everywhere, but you can't say it enough. You shouldn't be allowed to do a Scottish accent without a license. Like seriously, if I, I got, if I ever got into politics, that's the only thing I'd really about legislating is like just shut up just don't 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 do it and they, every time you do it people come at you with their version oh and it's like oh no no wonder yeah no don't yeah have <laughs> Scottish people given you the tick of approval they have yeah right. yeah they actually have yeah yeah they said I could pass um, for um, a Scott. There so you go. better than that. On a lot of your TV shows, you were also writing. Were you tempted when you do a film like this? Are you always sort of tempted to oh, massage your I line? totally did. I, I rewrote a lot of my lines. Oh, really? In a, yeah, yeah. You know, um, at about, you know, one o'clock in the morning, not necessarily, <laughs> maybe not the best judgment <laughs> being deployed at that hour, but... Um, um, you know, it depends. Steve and Amos really let us do that. I mean, we had no say on the, the structure or what the, what it was fundamentally about or anything like that. Um, uh, but certainly, you know, I, I you know, if I feel like oh, this this is a bit undercooked, I'll try and work to you know uh, language it up a bit because um, uh, we've always done that. You know, always like way back to um, um, fast forward and stuff. I mean, actually, Big Girls Blouse and Kath and Kim they were pretty tightly scripted. Something stupid. They were all pretty tightly scripted um, and to be honest the writing was so good like with Kath and Kim we didn't need to you know mm. but sometimes you know I think um, uh, you know when, when you, you, you you kind of come to a different project and it, you want to it's different if it's if you're working with people that you know really well and they know really how to write for you you know yeah. so you, you just sort of um, 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 try and it's not put your stamp on it so much as just infuse it with a, a bit of the way you, you do things, you know. You have played heaps of iconic characters. Is there any particular character that resonates or has resonated the most with Australia? Who do you think people come up oh, to? Oh, Sh- Sharon is the one. Sharon, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but the other one is tired, tired, uh. tired. I said love, I said pet, I said please. <laughs> Um, there's something, and it's so. What's terrifying is so many people say to me, "Oh my God, I know someone just like her," and it f- frightens the life out of me to know that there's an army of these women out there <laughs> that are like the Lynns of the world. Like, God help us, you know. Oh. Um, so yeah, it's been. You know, I, I just think, uh, you know, I'm I'm nearly 57, and I think, God, I've been doing this for so long now. And it's so great to look back and think, I've had so many great laughs with my mates on shows and including on this, like with the barbecue, really fun people to work with. The one I was the most starstruck by was Nicholas Hammond, who plays my love interest, who was played Friedrich in The Sound of Music. Oh, wow. Yes. That's Avita Zena, adieu, adieu, adieu. <gasps> That's him. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. I know. And all I, I just, all I wanted to do was ask him about Julie Andrews. I was like, please don't disillusion me because that will kill me. You know, if you tell me she's not a good person, he said, no, she is absolutely divine. Oh, wow. Don't you love knowing that? Yes. <laughs> don't you feel just so, so warm? In, uncertain, yeah. in these uncertain times, you need to know that Julie Andrews is the real deal. Uh, <laughs> don't ruin the sound of music too. <laughs> a lot of it was filmed um, in Albury, which is... In February. Who does that? It's oh so my hot. God, 45 degrees with barbecues. Oh, no. Oh, that's crazy. That's I, I grew up in Albury and it was I, crazy watching it and yeah. you went, that's my high school. Oh, really? Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I loved it. 
Yeah, no, it was fun. It's fun to, it's really, there's a particular sort of um, energy that you get when you're filming in a small town and the town are really behind it and really excited about it. Yeah, about they it. would have been because the, the world premiere was in was Yeah, in I, I couldn't make it, unfortunately, but everyone said it just went off. I mean, it's a real, look, I don't know that the critics are going to love this film. It's a very, but it's a very mainstream amiable, um, you could take your great-grandmother, little kids, anyone yeah, to it, which yeah. is sort of not... Those things are rare, you know, that you can actually take the whole family to. So that's mm. great. Well, is that a part of the reason what drew you to it? It seems like a lot of Australian films nowadays are quite dark. Yeah. <laughs> there's not a lot of Australian comedies out there. No, there's not. There's not. And, and you know, kudos to the producers for getting this together. Like, it's not easy to get Australian comedies up. There's really not a lot made. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of things that come my way that, uh, well, there's just not a lot of things that come my way generally in terms of comedy. There really isn't. Um, and um, and I thought, good on them for getting this together. And, and I like the fact that it's just a broad, you know, sort of um, general sort of mm. inclusive. Open, accessible. Open, yeah, accessible. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. So, And hopefully it will work too because, you know, the industry needs sort of mainstream successes. It's coming out on a lot of screens, which is great. Yeah. That's a vote of confidence from the distributors. So, you know, because they certainly, they don't do that if they don't think the film's got legs. Yeah. I mean, know? can we go back looking at, like, when you did Big Girl's Blouse, like, no. that... I'm such a big fan. Love that show oh, so much. Oh, that's um, the connoisseurs one is Big Girls Blouse. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Kath you. And Kim basic, Kath, Kath and Kim basically raided the, the wardrobe, the closet yes, of, of Big Girls Blouse. From, it just took everything from, yeah. I mean, Big Girls Blouse is part of the reason why I do, why I'm a comedian now. Um, but it only had one season. Well, because we're on a commercial network, um, you know, so much of it is about where you get slotted in the schedule and what you're up against. And we were up against the first season of ER. We just got slammed and we had a show before us where the ratings had, because it was half our slots. Mm. Um, and so the, the first half hour was the ratings just had dived and we just couldn't pull them back up again. Um, and so, um, you, you know, we would have loved to have done more, but... It really, in a way, it served its purpose for us because that was the birth of us as, you know, creator, writers, producers, you know. And we, we it was it was amazing. We thought that, um, you know, we were just a bunch of friends. We were all feminists, but it wasn't like part of a feminist agenda, you know. Yes. As, as Judith Lucy says, as, as soon as you have more than one woman on the stage, it's like you're plotting the feminist revolution. <laughs> yes. And and this was in the 90s and the, the resistance from um, male journalists when we go on radio shows and stuff was like, Oh, we were shocked. We How were like, so? Like, what would they do? Oh, like, so uh, they're really defensive. Oh, so you're going to be doing jokes about men and all that sort of stuff. Uh, like, no, couldn't even be more boring. No, <laughs> that's not what we're going to be doing at all. And and we were really thrilled that at the end, the largest audience was men 18 to 39. So it just sort of proved them wrong, all these preconceptions that people had. Um, and... Um, it was, you know, I still, I still love watching that show, and that, that, and something stupid. I think there are things that really, in both of those shows, really stand the test of time. Mm. In 2015, you published your book Reckoning, which has, I just think, an amazing first line. If you had <laughs> met my father, you would never, not for an instance, have thought he was an assassin. Who would not want to read <laughs> that story? I know. I did. That was that was actually came a few pages later, and the editor put that up the front, and I kind of balked because I. You know, I just sort of thought, oh, that feels a bit sensationalising. And um, and then I, it was interesting, I read it out to the family to get their response and when my nephew said, yeah, I'd read that book, I went, 
done, oh, you know, yeah. because that's what oh, you want. Wow. You want to, um, because it's about intergenerational trauma and and um, and I just think there were, I was hoping that there would be important messages there and you, you, you know, you, you, you know, you've got to sugarcoat the pill. Well, that's not exactly sugarcoating that line. <laughs> <laughs> Shoving it down their throats. <laughs> Well, it's it's a it is an intriguing line. It's a bit of a ball terror of an opening line. That one. It's sort of. I feel like if I ever write anything again, the pressure's on. Like, how could I ever beat that? It's a, but it's true. I mean, he was so. You know, uh, that flowed from um, the truth. So. Oh, that's yeah. right. I was going to say, you've kind of been non-stop, as you were saying, off-air since last year. Yeah. Um, you became somewhat of a spokesperson for, for same-sex somewhat. marriage. <laughs> yeah. And, which was amazing. And it made, it made such a huge difference for a lot of us. How are you feeling now, though, now that that's all kind of happened? Are you exhausted? Are I'm, you... I'm really, really tired. Yeah. It was really um, – I was fine through it. I mean, my mum died right in the middle of all that. It was really – Jesus. Yeah, it was really – like, literally, I did the first interview. Between the first interview, like a, like a couple of – of interviews and then a week later my mother you know I mean so I took time off after that to be at her bedside um she took a week to die you know and then I and then it was like just straight back in doing Q&A and preparing for that and everything so it, I think it's all hitting me now to be really honest I, I um <laughs> sort of staggering around at the moment but um it was such a like this Mardi Gras this year is just it's going to go off because it's the 40th anniversary um it's um you know we're all equal now equal mm. citizens there's nothing you know under the law there is nothing nothing that discriminates against us um share is going to be there you know it's just going to go off so it was uh, it was um it was scary and it was um it was both an honor and a and um a scary sort of burden in some ways in that you you feel really not a burden that's not the right word but you you feel a responsibility yeah. you feel this huge responsibility because um I just have a very keen sense of how terrible I think we all do had it been a no mm. it would have just been dire because it would have led to all it would have encouraged all those people like Tony Abbott to push through all sorts of conservative mm. agendas you know that would have been just the 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 pointy edge of the wedge, so... Um, yeah, thin it edge was of the hard wedge. to... Um, I guess you had to be there to put on a positive face with it every day. Yeah. And, you know, as a, as a gay person, I think a lot of my, you know, gay friends and stuff, we were all so fearful... The yeah. fear was always there. Everyone always talked about how it was, it's all right, it's going to be yes, it's going to be yes, but None of us felt sure. At yeah. all. Mm. And, and it was, and you know, and I did. I, I knew that that was my job was to sort of be the mascot and to um, rally people and mm. and um, and be strong throughout that. And, and, you know, and I felt really strong, you know. Um, I mean, it was a very hard time because of all that had happened and, and I was coming off the back end of a an 18-month book tour um, um, after after Reckoning, which... Um, and that was a that was a hard book to write too, I mean, because it is about my father's experiences in the war fighting the Nazis, wow. you know. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so it's been this really chunky sort of few years, but, but in another way it's been the most exhilarating, beautiful time of my life. Like I feel like I'm really, you know, really who I am now very much. It feels, I feel very um, aligned with my values, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, not that I haven't been, but I feel in the past, but I feel like super aligned yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. Oh, I thought you did a terrific job and it made, Thanks. I mean, it made a huge difference to me. 
Oh, especially, thanks, yeah. thanks. And look, I was amazed. So every time I see my friends, like, you know, sometimes ones I haven't seen for a while, or just people in the street, they come up to me and they're people who've been out for decades and mm. they feel really comfortable in their skins and they didn't feel they, you know, they hadn't felt sort of prejudice or discrimination, some of them thought, until yep. that moment. And they were... they. I was amazed that people, well, the older ones had certainly, but they said, oh, I was so surprised how, how much this rattled me. Yeah. People were really unnerved by it. And, you know, I mean, there's sort of been criticism of like, you know, the, like, oh, you know, gays, we gave you marriage, just shut up about it, get over it. Yeah. It's like, it, you have to, it's incumbent on you to say, look, as a deliberative process, this was crap don't put anyone else through this and don't any other minority group be wishing for this because if it comes back and no you're screwed yeah mm. you're really totally screwed yeah the film is called the barbecue it's screening just about everywhere as we were saying uh it stars magda subzanski subzanski who's been our guest thanks so much for joining us <laughs> magda subzanski <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. On Friday night, Sarah and I um, went to the Zoo Twilights and we saw Neil and Liam Finn. Yes, we did. Yep, sorry. Jeff couldn't make it because you had to acclimatise your cat. Ruby. Ruby. Or what's its pedigree name? Poor, pause a while, Meliadora. Pause a while. Pause a while. I love it. Pause a while. Um, what, a, what a night to be at the zoo. It was about 32 degrees oh, at nice. 10 in the evening, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was quite... so warm. Mm. And did, was, you, did you get the chance... To, I, I mean, I asked Geraldine this before off air, Sarah, but did you get a chance to see the animals? No, but I'm going again this Friday, uh, fingers crossed actually. I'm taking a mate of mine's kids to their first ever concert and it's uh, hiatus Cody's yeah. this Friday, hiatus Cody's performing and I'm going to take the kids to see the zoo beforehand and then go to hiatus. So I thought I'll get my fill then with the kids. I, I love that. I'm going to take the kids to see the zoo. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no, I, and I really wanted to go but we're a bit, we just, I was a bit late. Yeah. Yeah, everything was a bit last minute. Yeah, because I didn't – I got the tickets like last minute. Like yeah. I think it was about 5 o'clock and I was like, oh, I'm just – I wonder what time the gates opened and it was like 5.30 gates. I'm like, oh, go. And then, go. and then it was like, but, it, you know, and then I relaxed a bit realising the concert didn't actually start till 7 or so. Yeah. So I chilled out a bit. Anyway, um, went along, obviously um, had a bit of a, a, a stressful day with the moving and stuff. Like I picked, every time I picked up a box, the bum fell out of it and <coughs> shit was everywhere and like, you know. It's just like, Comedy of errors. Yeah. Like I'd, I'd given up on the moving and went, oh, I can't handle this anymore and I went and had a nap and then anyway, <laughs> got to <laughs> – met up with, with you yes. and your mate. Um, My mate Rose. Yeah, and we were having a lovely time and, God, it was such a great concert. It was funny at one stage when they started playing, I was over getting another drink or some food maybe and then I suddenly started listening and went, oh, that's why I'm here. How great is this? Yeah. Like I just had this moment of, oh, I'm here for it. Like it was good enough we already. We were so busy sitting on the grass having a wine yeah. and a chat that she'd forgotten, forgotten that Neil Finn music. was going to play. Yeah. yeah. And I just went, this that is... was an added bonus. <laughs> I know it was. And then later though we went, because um, we have to sit on the ground, I like to stand up a bit yes. and I like to get closer to the action. So I went, I'm, I'm just going to go up the front. 
I'm going to go out the front, stand on the side, watch for a bit. And then I saw this guy get up on stage. I thought he was... It just looked like a, a drunk guy up on stage and the security was right behind him. Oh, I thought he was bum-rushing the stage. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah, and it was like this moment of... How how did he get this far? How did he get past the first round of security? And also no one seemed to mind. Like Neil Finn just kept performing. I I saw I was a bit closer and Neil like kind of gave him this look of it seemed like he was just going, I think security's on to this. I'm just gonna keep on playing. I think I'm all right, but please don't get any closer to me. Yeah. There was a moment of a little bit of panic on his face well, that I, I thought I that. detected. Ah. Yeah. Who, who was he? And then wait. And then the security, they just took him out the back, right? They, I'm like, well, that was dealt with very easily, on with the show. Um, and then they, Neil kept on playing and singing. They were playing Message to My Girl. And then gets to like an interlude, musical interlude. And Neil goes, oh, I have a friend here that's got something that he wants to, wants to do. Wants to do or say or something. He wants to say. He's got, got a few words. That's it. So he comes up to the uh, drunk guy comes back out. I'm like, oh, hello. He's drunk guy He's letting again. drunk guy say something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what could go wrong? And I'll he just hand the microphone yeah. out to a local drunk. Yeah. But he gets on the mic and I'm like, is he going to sing? I thought he was going to, you know, be special guest vocalist. I thought he was going to say, I've lost my kid or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Edward, if you're out there. Oh, I'd like another drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, he gets up and he says... Um, I can't remember what name it was, but let's just say it was Becky. Just went, Becky, sure. um, I've been in love with you oh. since the 11th grade. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I love you so much and I just want you to, to be my girl. Will you marry me? And, and it's a proposal. Yeah, and I bald and then I looked out into the crowd because everyone's like where is she right and look at and then there's some other random woman getting up walking about I'm like don't do that now sit down this is not about you sit down and then they're all looking for the for the woman that he proposed to there was a moment where everyone went oh my god she's not She's not coming up. Yeah. Where, like, like it took a while for there to be a response. Yeah, cause, and even Neil said, did she say yes? And he's like looking and going, I don't know. Uh, and then he's like said, baby, put both hands in the air if it's a yes. And then you see this woman running through the crowd with both hands in the air. And we're really like, nice. Yeah, she did it. <laughs> and then she gets all on stage. And then when she get, got up on stage, because I'm crying so much, I went, oh, no, Sarah's on her own because your mate had to go to the bathroom or whatever. She missed the whole thing. And then so I come, I'm like, Sarah's on her own. She can't handle this on her own. I've got to go. I've got to go. And then I come, came, came and found you. And, of course, you're crying. You're going, oh, I can't believe I'm crying. I'm like, that's why I'm here because I'm crying as well. I knew you wouldn't, you wouldn't be, so you wouldn't be alone. It was a big cry moment, but it was lovely. Uh, it was so really she, beautiful. Did she get up on stage as well? Yeah, yeah, although he kind of picked her up. I think maybe you had a couple of drinks and he kind of picked her up and, whizzed her around and grabbed her butt or something. I could just she was trying to pull her skirt down. You know when you're like, oh, put it was, her down. Yeah. Give her some modesty. Yeah. Oh, okay. So they didn't say anything though. They didn't No, she said yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Could you? And then he got down on his knee and it was beautiful. And it was really lovely. And then apparently she landed one on Neil as she as she walked she? out. Yeah. I didn't see <laughs> Someone else mentioned that that was there. Like, just walk past and... One before she's locked in for life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What did, 
you think you'd, you'd sort of feel you'd have to say yes, wouldn't you? Well, we uh, discussed yes. this as well afterwards. You would absolutely have to say yes. And then afterwards you say, look, I just yeah. said that because there was all these people. Oh, in. how terrible. This <laughs> is why I'm not a fan of public proposals, but she was an enthusiastic yes. yes. And he must have had a vibe. Like, you're not going to get up and just stop do it a if whole you thought gig. it was 50-50. <laughs> yeah. I also wonder how often Neil Finn gets asked for someone to do that at his shows because their songs are so emotional. Like, I cried so much during that set. Yeah. It was quite beyond. And I thought he must be so, like, oh, whatever. Maybe He's that's another why one. he wasn't worried when the guy, he saw the guy coming up on stage. He thought, here we go. It's that time of the, that time of the gig. <laughs> oh, that another we're proposal. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Three. Triple. Listening to Breakfasters. It's Tuesday, 6.15, which means it's time for Trauma Tuesday, where we just talk about our traumas that have happened in our lives in the past week. Yes, we do. Um, <laughs> big or small. Like, yeah, big or small. It feels like I've had... Mostly small. A lot of... Yeah, they're all small. <laughs> um, a lot of traumas this week. Like there's the moving... Moving well, is, that's a, is a massive trauma. trauma. Do you know, someone said to me that it is the number one most stressful thing that you can do in life. Voted number one for really? most stress. Yep. More than a divorce or... Death. Yeah. Yep. I don't think that's true. More stressful. I don't think that's, that's true. That's what the people <laughs> voted. <laughs> someone told me it has to be true. Oh, I well, bet someone told you about a mystery survey <laughs> yep. that... Unknown people voted on. Yeah. Well, that's that's good news because you're through it now. That means everything's by definition going to be uh, am up. Am I through it? Am I through it? I don't <coughs> think I am. I am far from oh. through it. It's just I've all I've done is oh I'm almost. I've got the um, people coming to collect stuff today, um, and then I've got to get the cleaners in, and then I've got to empty all the stuff. Now, my house, my new home is just I'm surrounded by boxes and bags of. Are you Crap. finished up at the old house? Is there cleaners in for the old house or? No, that's what I've got oh, to do. Yeah, right. Um, you know so the best thing about moving? You just kind of have to accept it and be a bit zen about it. That's what I found every time. I moved like five times in four years mm. and you just, I just had to be a bit much. like, he's nice. No, had to go. I just had to go. It's all good. Okay, I'm just moving. Oh, and I privileged to be able to move. I'd just be really zen. <laughs> and then I'd have little fits of anger and then I'd try and be zen again. <laughs> so that's what I did on the... On the f- <laughs> I can imagine you sitting in zen. <laughs> <laughs> that was mostly it. <laughs> on, the, on the Friday went after we finished here and I, I... The plan was to spend all day just getting stuff done. Yeah. Um, and I went in and uh, Celia and had put a box aside with all my stuff in it from the kitchen, oh. a, a whole box of stuff, like just glass jars that I'm sure Kath will make some sauce and put them into these jars or some jam or something and some other bits and pieces and stuff. And I went, oh, that's very handy. I'll pick up that box and I'll put it in the car. Thanks for that. And then I picked up the box and then the ass fell out. Why did the box? Who is... Not taping these boxes for you before moving. Celia. Celia. <laughs> but does anyway. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> so the ass fell out of the box and I'm like, well, that's... That is pretty tall. Oh, that is really upsetting. I had a bit of... I had a little bit of a cry. <laughs> I had a little bit of a... Okay, I'm trying to be zen about it. Just, uh, so, But I left that there. That stayed there for two days. Uh, and then I got other... Bo- and then I picked up a box out of the car. The ass fell out of that. 
just crap went everywhere all over my driveway and then that's when I, I gave up after that and I just hopped into bed and <coughs> cried myself to sleep. That's fair enough, really. Um, oh, and the other trauma I had um, was I um, went through an orange light and got a got the flashlight, going to get oh. a ticket. Oh, my God, that upsets me more than anything when you get the flash. Because oh. he's waiting for the... Well, see, I went, I went zen on it and I went, oh, fair call. I should have stopped. Where was it? Had you seen the camera and were you trying to beat the camera or did you not know the camera was there? I didn't know the camera was there. Oh. Where was it? Do you do you try and beat the camera? No, no, no. I just wasn't sure. <laughs> you said it's a challenge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll take you. <laughs> no, I don't know why I asked that. Uh, where was the camera? Just on um, on Alex then. On Alexandra. Oh, okay. Somewhere crossing. Oh, I know what you're talking about where the KFC is. No. No, okay, I'm just making it up. Don't worry about it. No, no, like, um, the, um, oh, it doesn't matter. It's not important. Matter. It's all yeah, right. it's not important. It doesn't matter. I'm going to I'm gonna get a ticket in the mail soon. You just seem to be pointing to Preston and saying the Alexander, so I was, oh, <laughs> it's all right. I don't know where I am in here. <laughs> well, that does sound very traumatic. Mm. I yes. haven't had anything particularly traumatic, although I do have the trauma of settling in. Um, pause a while, Melodora. Oh, Ruby. yes. Um, so I can talk about that. Okay. Well, that is a traumatic yeah, thing. Yeah, because she's been a bit, you know, cats don't like moving very much. And she's, mm. you know, she's not a kitten. She's five or six years old. And so this is only the second place she's been to. But she disappeared under the filing cabinet and wouldn't come out. How do you get it. under a filing, filing cabinet? Filing. There's a little oh. sort of look uh, behind it. Oh, Jesus, a magic door. cat. <laughs> <laughs> or a flat cat. cat. Alex Mack. <laughs> 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 and so she would just sit there and I was thinking, all right, this is a good cat, of course. Oh, oh God. This cat it just <laughs> stays out of sight the entire time. It's no, not better than – I was no better off when I didn't have a cat at all. But then um, I got up the other morning and she was out and about and she came up and wanted a tummy, tummy scratch. Oh, that's not traumatic. That's very no. good. Yeah. And then I scratched her tummy and we had some tummy scratching time. And then she ran back before, behind the fire cabinet again oh, for another day. Oh, that's all right, though. No, but she's coming out and like, yesterday I was watching TV and she came, sat on my lap and watched TV with that's me. That's a good <gasps> sign. Yeah, and now big. she's up and about. That's she, actually quite fickle. This sounds like a high tide Thursday now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's turned around. But, um, yeah. I tell you what, it's been a long time since I haven't had a pet, right? Yeah. I think I've had a pet pretty much all my life, mm. except for when Gruff died. And so, I, I don't know, it was like three months or something. Mm. But, um, gosh, it makes a difference. Yeah. It, it really does. It's in having a presence. Yeah. Just oh, coming home. I don't because I don't have a pet. Well, I haven't got, had one for ages. You've got a live-in boyfriend, though. I mean, I'm sort of, <laughs> sort of I mean. Yeah, but that's not a pet. A right, pet. I'm just saying there's a living presence. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a living presence, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, to, to come back to an apartment and have a pet there, even even when they're behind the fire cabinet, you just kind of know that they're there. Yeah, that's nice. It is nice. Yeah. She's such a great cat. Oh, that's really good. I'm happy that you got it. This doesn't sound like a trauma Tuesday, though, Jeff. I don't yeah. know what you've done here. Yeah, I think Turn you scraped the bottom of the barrel and went, oh, no, nothing traumatic's happened to me. I'm, I've got I'm a sorry, cat, guys, though. if nothing bad has happened yeah. in my life. <laughs> um, I, oh, so the other day, so it's the end of my season of vegetables, summer season of vegetables at the moment in my front yard, which has brought me a lot of joy. We're still getting heaps of cucumbers and my friend Jack came around the other day and we, she was going to go, we we're going to go to her house and have dinner. So I said, let's pick some things from my garden and we picked some basil, we picked some cucumber and I was showing off about the garden and then some of my tomatoes have come through and I picked a tomato and as I picked the tomato, I went, oh, that's oh. weird. My finger has slid into the tomato oh. on the other side. 
And then I went, that just doesn't feel... I said, oh, it must be a bit rotten. And oh, I turned it around. disgusting. And my finger had slid into a hole that was in the tomato filled with maggots. Oh, you win Trauma Tuesday. Maggots on my fingers. You win. Oh, that's <laughs> really disgusting. Okay, it's been a long time since I've had the feeling of maggots oh, on my hand. It. It's 6.15 it. They were on my finger. <laughs> That's it. Three triple R. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. How do writers get paid? That's a very good question and I wish I knew the answer. A man who does know the answer, at least more of the answer than I do, is the Canadian-American activist and author Corey Doctorow who is speaking on that topic tonight for the Wheeler Centre alongside literary agent Alex Adsit and copyright expert Zoe Rodriguez. Right now, though, he's joining us in the Triple R studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Well, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. A lot of people would answer the question about writers getting paid by saying, well, writers can't get paid these days because new technology has destroyed the newspapers and the magazines from which writers traditionally made a lot of their money. But in your book, Information Doesn't Want to Be Free, you say that argument about technology has been around ever since the printing press. And in many ways, our new technology makes getting paid easier. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, well, we, what we tend to do is have this kind of survivor bias where we uh, legitimize the incomes of the writers who succeeded in the last technical revolution or the artists who succeeded in the last technical revolution. And we call the people who are earning money in the next generation kind of upstarts who aren't doing real art. So, you know, the, the people who wrote sheet music back when sheet music was the only music industry as opposed to the music craft of performing it, they were the legitimate music industry. And once recordings became possible, people who recorded music were thought of as effectively pirates because they were taking the the hard bit, writing the instructions for which music you should play, and then just doing the easy bit, playing it, and making money off of it. And um, really, I think the critical thing that we need to think about is not whether or not the artists who won the lottery in the last round of technological change continue to get paid forever, but whether the people who are currently making art have the lion's share of the cash headed towards them. And it's a different question. It's one that I think we should be attuned to because it, I think it's only fair that the people whose creative work are produ- is producing the most value should be first in line to get paid for it. But um, if our focus is on making sure that last year's successful artists continue to be successful next year, we not only strangle those new people, but we also, because the, those artists tend to be most closely aligned with the industries that supported them, we mostly end up lining the pockets of the industries uh, that are their bosses and not the artists themselves. The last figures I saw for the average earnings of Australian writers was pretty dire. I can't remember the exact figure, but it was the sort of numbers you couldn't feed a dog on. Is that the same everywhere? Uh, are writers overseas also learning, uh, earning very small amounts? And if so, what is it that we can do about it? I think a lot depends on who you count as a writer. So averages are, are incredibly misleading numbers. If you were to add up everybody who ever made you know two cents a word on a science fiction story writing for Hugo Gernsback in 1937, and then divide by the total incomes they made over their lives, you'd find some pretty dismal numbers. What we tend to do 
is take a small number of people who define themselves as professional writers and then divide it by that small number and come up with a very big number. Uh, the reality is that almost everybody who's ever set out to make a living in any form of the arts has failed to make any money. In fact, most people have lost it. You know, everyone mm -hmm. who ever took a guitar lesson uh, uh, as the divisor of everyone who ever made any money playing the guitar uh, yields a number that is uh, zero or possibly negative. And so um, I think that today you see a small number of writers earning a very large amount of money. Certainly the winner-take-all phenomenon is alive and well. And you see a much larger middle class that on average is probably earning less than the artists that have historically participated in art markets, but they're much larger, right? We have much more, many more people making art. And I think that, you know, if you think of copyright as cultural policy, its objective can't be to ensure that any given creative work is maximally profitable. Its objective should be that to, to ensure that the largest number of people produce the most diverse uh, pool of works to serve the largest and most diverse audience. That, that you know, a, a film policy that produced $1 billion movie every year is a lot less significant uh, and a lot less successful than a film policy that produces thousands of movies that in aggregate might earn less than that one very successful movie. Do you think the same argument can be made, though, for hard news journalism? You know, living in this post-truth world, mm. a lot of the traditional media organisations are saying that people don't want to pay for their news anymore. And the flow-on effect is not only journalists not getting paid, but perhaps the quality of news that we're receiving being affected as well. I don't think people ever paid for news. I mean, if you look at the historic newspaper, they were either supported by political parties and partisan hackery. You know, there's a reason that in Ontario, where I grew up, we had a newspaper called The Whig Standard. Um, <laughs> or they were effectively a way for patrician small-town newspaper owners to uh, inject a small amount of news into a newspaper whose major business model was using sports scores to sell washing machines. And, you know, incidentally, some news was crammed in around there out of that sense of patrician duty. Now, what actually happened, if you look at the history of the newspapers, is there was massive consolidation uh, in after the kind of big deregulatory booms of the 1980s across the developed world, where Thatcher, Reagan, Pinochet, Mulroney, and, and other neoliberal leaders said that it would be okay for a single newspaper baron, including a very notorious Australian, to start <laughs> snapping up newspapers across markets to uh, become vertically and horizontally integrated where they would own other kinds of news outlets and to start slashing newsrooms and start slashing ad sales and so on. You know, newspapers and news gathering has weathered many technological shocks over the years, uh, telegraphs, telephones, TV, radio, and so on. And at each turn, there was real significant problems that, that they had to contend with. The difference in the internet era is that they went into it with no money in their coffers because they had been cashed out by vulture capitalists who had bought them up, assets stripped them, taken uh, all of their um, uh, hard capital and turned it into things that they were leasing back. So, you know, those giant buildings that they owned in the CBDs of major cities were turned were sold off and then leased back. So they were then vulnerable to shocks and in, in rent hikes and so on. And with that came a newspaper industry that became very anemic. But, you know, find me the average news consumer who was even in the heyday of news spending an awful lot of money on news. Maybe they were spending 50 cents on a newspaper every morning, but they certainly weren't paying for the news TV. That was ad-supported, and they weren't paying for cable news when that came along. That was just bundled in with an unfair package from their cable operator. They were, they were effectively getting their news for free, and the difference is that classified advertising migrated 
not mm. that people's willingness to pay for news changed. Well, what do you think the model is going forward, though? Because you still have places like the New York Times, which people will consider to be, you know, fairly legitimate, asking for your money every time you go to their site because they say that's the only way that they can give you the stories that we're used to receiving. Well, I mean, I think that the New York Times is kind of a mixed bag. I, you know, I, I, like many people, watch them uh, make the case for uh, the Iraq war with utter credulity and cover up um, uh, torture and so on. So, you know, if, we're, if, our, if our case is that the New York Times deserves to exist because they're an unmitigated force for good, that's a hard case to make. Yeah. They're, they're kind of a mixed bag, as are most news outlets. I think that... Um, uh, the New York Times uh, is so far actually doing reasonably well. They found a pivot that seems to be working for them for now. I, I, I would be surprised if it worked forever because technology is going to continue, continue to change markets. But if we want to make sure that um, there is room for an independent news world in the future, we could do well by starting to break up large inter- vertically and horizontally integrated multinationals and turn them into smaller, more nimble firms that are able to be more responsive to local needs. Uh, I, I think that where we've had that, that's actually worked reasonably well. There's a corollary in bookselling where the only chain bookseller that has managed to do very well in the world that I know of uh, in the post-internet era is Waterstones in the UK, where they broke up uh, the uh, central uh, office and they turned each of those effectively into an independently managed bookstore. Mm-hmm. So they no longer have national co-op advertising. They no longer have national buyers. Every store manager runs it like an independent store and they've been spoiled for choice for great bookselling talent because all the independent stores have shut down. And so they have these amazing booksellers who run these things like a local store. Um, all of the shops that tried to run their uh, national business in this kind of fiduciary duty model where any penny spent on anything that didn't immediately realize a profit was a penny stolen from their shareholders, those stores all failed. And I think you're seeing the same with news gathering. You're seeing the same with other kinds of media. Um, You know, I, I think that like we can tinker in the margins with subsidies for industries that we value, uh, cultural industries, news gathering, and so on. And we should, because we need to keep those alive while we wait for a more structural solution. But it seems increasingly obvious that the structural solution to these problems is to have effective, regulated, non-monopolistic practices in those markets, as well as an enormous amount of public support for the kind of media we like. I mean, maybe it's in bad odor to talk about the ABC when we're in triple R. It sure is. But, you know... (laughs) I grew up with the CBC. I then moved to the UK and lived with the BBC. And, you know, now I live in the land of NPR. And NPR is pretty anemic relative to the rest of them. And it has to do with the size of the public subsidy. Public media is an an, an automatic, unalloyed good. Uh, We've seen how, you know, in Hungary and other rising autocracies, public media can be turned to negative purposes. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the arts are not a rational activity, right? People do not go into the arts and they never have gone into the arts with a rational expectation of return. And so... So uh, public subsidy for the arts produces really vibrant cultural sectors. Mm. You've been associated with Boing Boing for a long time. It began as a zine back in 1988 and then developed into a massively successful blog. Blog culture, though, has been challenged by the rise of social media, which, of course, is much more tightly um, controlled. How has Boing Boing coped with that? And what lessons are there for the role of creative people in the social media era? So I think that as with many commercial activities or many activities in your life, the trick is to not kid yourself. So um, 
when we've got it right, we have used Facebook and other social media as a means of trying to promote ourselves without kidding ourselves that Facebook was our friend, had our best interests at heart, or wanted anything other than our total destruction. Uh, <laughs> And where we've got it wrong is when we sort of kidded ourselves because, you know, these firms, they make overtures to successful websites all the time and offer you all kinds of deals. You know, everyone saw the, the so-called pivot to video in the last year where all these media companies spent fortunes trying to produce videos because that's what Facebook had decided they wanted. And it turned out to be, you know, the folly of a single executive at Facebook who lost power in a palace coup. And, you know, those billions are now being flushed down the toilet. Um, so... If you are aware that you've got into bed with an elephant that could roll over any moment, you can sometimes successfully get a good night's sleep. It's a hard <laughs> bet. Uh, it's 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 a hard bet though, right? And you know, ultimately, our future and the future of I think a, a, a fair world is in a federated internet where no firms control the lion's share, where anything can link to anything else, where enclosure is fought at every turn, and where at, in both the technological and, and regulatory sphere, we crack down on attempts to enclose the internet and ensure that anything can be linked to anything else. Yes, um, I'm interested that you say that because the trends in the world sometimes seem to be particularly bleak on these subjects that we're moving towards ever more um, control and ever more monopoly on the, the platforms that we use every day. But your latest novel, Walk Away, is a novel about the end of the world, but it's one that treats the end of the world almost as an opportunity rather than a disaster. And I'm interested in that optimism in often seem quite bleak times at the moment. Yeah, Walk Away, I call it an optimistic disaster novel. And it's <laughs> certainly not a novel that cheers for disaster. It's not disaster porn where we, you know, you fantasize about how finally come the disaster, all the unnecessary it will be banished to the lowlands and we can take up residence in our feudal <laughs> castles or anything. It's instead a novel that says, you know, when life gives you SARS, can you really make SARS barilla? Can you, can you find a way to salvage out of environmental devastation and the creation of a huge pool of of people who are unnecessary to the needs of the transhuman immortal life forms called limited liability corporations that have turned us into their inconvenient gut flora, what can you salvage out of the margins of that? Can you really build a better world? Can you, in the words of Alistair Gray, live as though we're the first ace of a better nation? So it's it's these people, they go out into the badlands, they find derelict buildings and brownfield sites, they rebuild them into fully automated luxury communist resorts uh, that run themselves. They cheer on the fact that the robots have taken all of our jobs because who really wants a job anyway? And they they lead a life of bohemian leisure that goes along actually pretty well until the moment that scientists working for the ultra-rich and what's left of the, the real world, what, what's, what, what I call the default world, uh, discover the practical immortality. And it, rather than being complicit in speciating the human race into immortal godlike plutocrats and everyone else, they steal the fire of the gods, bring it to the 99%. And when the super rich realize they're going to have to spend all of the rest of time with us hanging around, that's when the <laughs> cozy bohemia uh, is at its end and the hellfire missiles come out. And, that's, and, and it becomes an existential fight for the future of the human race. <laughs> Sounds great. No, oh, thank you. So it's mostly documentary. It's a good pitch. All right, the event is on tonight at the Willis Centre. Speaking about the topic, how do writers get paid, will be Zoe Rodriguez, Alex Edzett, and the man we've just been speaking to, Corey Doctorow. Thanks so much for joining us. Cheers, thank you. You're in 
You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to Breakfasters here on Triple R. Uh, Sarah, you're in the in the market for a new car. It's happening. Sure am. I am. Um, when I got my a car, like a bought it new to me, um, a, what two years ago? Yeah. Uh, what a difference it made in my life. Oh like my I God. had. So excited. I remember going from. Um, I had my first car was a Holden Barina. Um, and it had the personality of an old man in that, (laughs) (laughs) like, the air conditioning didn't work. Um, They kind of rattled those old Breeners, didn't they, too? Yeah. (laughs) And also, uh, like, I didn't have um, power windows. Like, I had to wind the windows down. And the air con didn't work. And also the radio was broken, so you could only get gold. FM. Wow. That's uh, that's, qu- that's yeah. quite a specific yeah. kind of breakage on the yeah, radio. Really is, yeah, really, yeah. although not the worst station to yeah, be was, stuck on. It was fine. Yeah. Lots of sing-along tracks. Yeah. yeah. That's why, it's, why my car was like an old man. Yeah, uh, I like it. I like it to be hot. <laughs> I don't like things to be easy and I only listen to gold FM. Um but when I was looking for a, a, a new car, on my list of um, things that I really wanted was power windows. Oh, mate. The joys of being able to have a window down on the passenger side without having to lean over. Oh, control it yourself from the front as well. Oh, the um, <laughs> changed my life. <laughs> Do you know why I can relate to this? Because when we were little, we had this super old Ford station wagon for mm. years. Like yes. this cream beat up one and it had a coat hanger as the aerial. Yeah, oh, the and I was, so, really I was so embarrassed because of the area we lived in, like there was some fancy people that lived around us. Mm. And as a kid, you know, you just kind of, all you do is look around and go, oh, but then we got a new Ford station wagon and it was the big, we'd, it was the biggest deal of that had happened in our lives until this point. And then dad brought it home and it had, bloody wine, you know, not electric windows because he said oh. they were too dangerous if you're in a crash. Oh, oh no. Mr Smith. I oh, know. And I was so excited to have, you know, when you're little and you're yeah. like, oh, my God, we yeah. have electric it's windows. And this was the 90s, so electric windows yeah, were fairly yeah. exciting. What's supposed to even happen? Then. What are they supposed to do in a crash? I, I think because you can wind a window down. I don't know. So, so you can oh, get out. You, you might not be able to get out. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, oh. and also but if it goes crashing a car and like being wind trapped a window in down, and <laughs> trying to wind a window. Down. Also, if you went into a river, oh, yes, yeah. the water would be coming yeah. down, and your dad would turn to you and say, "Sarah, who was right now? <laughs> you know, wind that window down, or a, or a bushfire." Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's move on to <laughs> tragedies. <laughs> yes, but I totally appreciate that. Yeah, it was just it was life changing, and just having. But also, when um, so I first learnt how to, um, I didn't have a car; I had a motorbike first. So going from a motorbike to a car, even that was like, oh my goodness, I can go to the shops and get whatever I yeah. want. Yeah, <laughs> whatever I want, I just put it in the boot. I don't have to try and figure out how to get my shopping home. <laughs> yes, oh, right. And bet. rain isn't traumatic. <laughs> yeah, because you used to ride a bike as yes. well, didn't you? Nightmare now that I think back on it, but yeah, totally. That you realise that actually, if if it's a cold, windy day, yes. doesn't actually have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you can listen to music, <laughs> and you don't have to think you're going to die all the time. So exactly. I, so my car at the moment, I don't have um, the lock. You know what? We lock, click a key. Oh yeah, yeah, the auto. Yeah, oh, and yes. because and because I wake up early in the mornings and stuff, I just 
I, I would like the peace of mind of being able to walk towards my car and go beep beep. Or you know when you're in an underground car and park you can't and you get find that it. weird vibe. Also, just the weird vibe you get wor- worrying that someone's gonna stalk mm. you. I don't know. Like sometimes yeah. I just think you know you're walking around a dark car park, and I just like to be able to go beep beep, and it's a nice yes. reassuring noise. You know, you can get straight in the car. Do you know what else? I, I, I can do that from my bedroom now. Oh, my God, can you? So good. Oh, that is pretty cool. So I want to know what else is – what small things in your life, like, um, makes your life heaps better? Like, for example, there's – for me, it was the power windows. Changed my life. Uh, there's also um, getting a good mattress – Getting a good mattress. Oh my god! Oh, Ch- changes changed everything. my life. I didn't really. I underestimated that until I got a new mattress. Yeah. But the well, pro- problem is now I just want to sleep, sleep all the time. Yeah, yeah, that's that fair. Uh, and there's one that goes along with that, which is getting really high quality sheets. Oh, yes, the fancy. Yeah. Do you know, I did um, a – I was talking to a friend about this one day and he goes, oh, what's the what's the point of having – what's this thread count mean? Like what is – sheets of sheets. And then I made him put his hand in the, in the pack of the sheets and I'm like, you just slide your hand in there, mate. And he went, ooh, oh, I get it now. <laughs> It is so true. And it's I was going to say, I'll add to that, not just not just fancy sheets, clean sheets. Like we washed our sheets yesterday. What, for the first time this year? <laughs> the first time this year, no. We washed our sheets yesterday and I just, oh, this was, it's just the best I, feeling I, in the world. I was going to say that, but I didn't for fear of <laughs> sounding lazy. What do you <laughs> so, mean? Just like, you know, the, the joys of putting clean sheets on your bed. Yeah, but then you I realised Actually, yeah, you can you do get that, that joy you once a week. You yeah. can, but I actually like the, like, I don't like to change it to ones that have been sitting in the cupboard because they smell weird. I like the fresh sitting and it just being dried by the sun. Also, I hate putting fitted sheets on. I hate it so much. Do you? Yeah. I do, yeah. I, I, I come up with many excuses to not be the person who has to do that in our house. Yeah. Why? Well, see, you don't have, you a have choice. someone else. I can stare at the damn cat and say, look, we can wait as long as it takes. Put that sheet on. Or... You could wait for Steph to come down from Sydney and be like, why are you here? <laughs> why, why do you hate the fitted sheet? What? Because you put one corner on and then you try and put the other oh, corner yeah. on and then it all gets and it goes off and then... And you're kneeling on the bed trying to pull down one corner and it, you can't get the sheet oh, all the your, way. Is your bed right tucked in the corner? Mine's in the corner. Yes, exactly oh, that. So yes. You have yes, that problem I as do. well. Yes, I do, yes. Well, there's your, there's your problem right there. <laughs> Move your bed from out from the wall. That'll change your life. <laughs> uh, I don't know if it's uh, my also for me when my coffee is absolutely perfect. So if someone serves me a coffee that's hot yep. and strong, I uh, could marry that person because especially when it's my first coffee of the day and mm. I just need it so badly. It's like a drug. <laughs> I was going to say. I know. As the person Sad. responsible for, for bringing you coffee every morning. I know. It, you didn't make it, Jeff. Yeah. Sorry. I was going to yeah. say, don't you I, I really don't boring. expect you to marry yeah. me. Yeah. Get over yourself, <laughs> Jeff. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Breakfasters. It is Friday morning. Is our favourite time of the week where we get to do our dinner review. Yay. Yay. <laughs> uh, all right, it, maybe yeah. it's not Jeff's favourite. <laughs> it is what? Jeff's favourite. You yeah. love it, Jeff. Yeah, no, it's good. It's good. Uh, although... What, you have another favourite, Wednesday. <laughs> I do like Wednesday. <laughs> that time when you had to breed your dogs, that was funny. Yeah. Um, although <laughs> last night... Um, actually, look, I'll start. Last Go, night... Um, all right. Last night I was having my dinner. I made myself some vegan spaghetti. Delish. 
Well, what, what? you'd think so, wouldn't you? But no. But when you say vegan spaghetti, yeah. like vegan bolognese. Yeah, like is it, there's a vegan mince. Vegan mince, right, that, yeah. I think that's that core or the whatever corn, it is. Yeah. Because yeah. most one. spaghetti's vegan if you're not having meat with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all right, I used the vegan mince and I made that and I had a salad. And so it was fine. It was nothing special. Anyway, um, my friend Lizzie texted me. She, she's going to see um, Ant Lowenstein's film that was premiering last night, the one we were going to be talking to him about. Oh, cool. um, there was a screening in Melbourne, but she couldn't get in. Like she got there too. We could we work out how she couldn't get in. To be honest, I sort of suspect maybe she went to the wrong place. Oh, okay. <laughs> but anyway, she couldn't get in. She texted me, said, "Are you there?" I said, "No, we're interviewing tomorrow. I've got a screener." And I said, "Why don't you come over and watch it?" Because oh, I'm about to watch it anyway. Fun. So she came over and we had a private screening. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it was fun. And, I, and because I can't drink, I made her a martini. So it was almost like I was having oh. a martini, except. She was having. Did you have a, a mocktail? No, I just had some water. Oh. But anyway, and then, but anyway, well, the, the reason I wanted to tell is because then I said, you should be, make sure you listen, because she's only going to just come back to Melbourne and just make sure you listen to Melbourne because we're doing dinner review tomorrow and I'll be talking about you. Oh, and is she listening? Well, she said she might not be up that early. But, oh. um, and then she. Is that her ringing now? Someone's <laughs> ringing. Sorry, I can't answer. <laughs> and then, and then, then I was also struggling. She said, Dinner review, what? You just talk about your dinner. And then I was struggling to explain about <laughs> dinner review. In fact, it's very popular. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so if you're do. listening, Lizzie, this is it. All right. Dinner review. That sounds, and, that sounds good, though. Yeah, it was. It was fun. You're not going to have the vegan mince ever again. It's all right. I don't, look, the problem wasn't the vegan mince, the problem was me. Right. Just, did you, did no. you just what flavorings did you add to this vegan mince? Did oh. you just cook up some mince? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Did you put any like tomato? A little bit of tomato. Yeah. A salt? No. Oh, no. Gross. Yeah, it wasn't any very, vegetables or not anything? Not really. No. No. So it wasn't very nice. Oh man, <laughs> that is was all you? your problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next time, have a can of spaghetti. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's an idea. I love canned spaghetti. Really? Tin spaghetti. Tin spaghetti, yeah. It's a real, like, nurturing childhood memory of mine was eating. I just loved it. I loved yeah. it as a kid as well, oh, which same. might be gross to other people. but No, no, I love it as well. And I didn't like baked beans very much, but I loved the tin spaghetti. Yeah, but those baked bean cans were always gross, weren't they? Well, oh, I didn't. I don't know. I, I, I didn't mind know. them. They just weren't my, my my brothers and sisters like baked beans and I like the tin spaghetti. Oh, yeah. Tin spaghetti was always the go-to. Yeah. And then you would go, if there was no tin spaghetti, sure, I'll have I'll baked, baked beans. beans on toast. Yep. It's fine, so but tin spaghetti. Tin spaghetti number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, we were very cultured children, yes. clearly. All right, I'm done. Uh, it's funny you should speak about vegan food because I had another vegan meal last night. I'm actually not eating dairy at the moment. I'm always not eating something. Welcome to veganism. This week, yeah, this week is uh, dairy and I'm going to stick with that for a little while and it's been fine because I don't eat a lot. The reason I'm cutting it out is because I don't have a lot. The most I have it in is in a coffee and so I don't really eat cheese. I have a cheese oh. on. I have like cheese on a pizza. Hence those weird macchiatas that you're getting. Yeah, so I've stopped. I've changed my coffee order oh, in the mornings here. It's causing chaos. It is. <laughs> I'm having macchiatos with a dash of soy. Today I'm going to have it with a dash of almond milk and really cause some chaos. <laughs> anyway, um, but last last night was a really nice evening. I went uh, and walked along the Arboretum in Brunswick West, which is like the big drains, uh, with my friend Jack with her dog. She's got a dog that's a um, like an Australian bulldog, mini Australian bulldog, and it can't run very far without getting extraordinarily tired. Like it gets, Aww. you know, because they've got that little squishy face. So he's like, yeah. <laughs> so she has to run him along the drain so that he can run through, which is, we've discussed that maybe it's not very hygienic, but he loves running in the drain water. Fair enough. And she gives him a good shower when he gets home. Great. Uh, which was really nice. So we did that and then went back to her house and uh, our friend Georgia came over and Jack 
as so often she does, cooked us a delicious vegan oh, feast oh. for dinner. I know, it's all she does is cook for us. And she cooked us, um, she baked some beetroot, some organic beetroot with salt and olive oil, like super simple but was delicious. And we had uh, some broccoli and kale, which again sounds gross, but she cooks everything with like, she just love, love like salt <laughs> and olive oil and garlic <laughs> and love. <laughs> Oh, we, that's, that's where I went wrong it's with my love, spaghetti. There yeah. was no love. Yeah. Uh, and then what else did we have with it? Um, Full of hate. There was other delicious things as well. well. She made some rye bread, like crisped up some rye bread. I didn't have much of that though. And there was something else, but now I've forgotten. I feel bad. Oh, I brought some of my cucumbers that I grew at home over with some basil and she made a salad with that. But she makes lots of – she's all about the spread. So me, Georgia and her sat down and had a, just a big spread of vegan food and had a good chat, kept the TV off, which is nice. Yeah. Do you ever – because I find that I default to having a screen on sometimes at dinner when I'm feeling tired, that we all just yeah. sat down and shared a meal together. It, makes, it, it does make such a difference, is it, because you're compelled to actually talk to each other. Yes. Yeah. yeah, which is nice. Oh, and actually, when we got there, they live – Jack lives in like a kind of old house in Brunswick West and she has a neighbour that has an overhanging fig tree. So Georgia and I went and climbed the fence and picked – Fresh and figs. I don't know oh. if that you're allowed to pick figs off your neighbour's tree, but we did. I think it's, it's always... like an adventure if, for the famous five. It was. If if it's whatever's hanging over the other side. Yes. Yeah, that's, to, that's okay, that's isn't it? That's fair game. Yeah. Great. And if you do own a fruit tree and you're not into that, get, keep up with the times. Yeah. Change your attitude. Yeah, okay. I like the way yeah. you think. Yeah, but um, I can't complain. I had a lovely evening, and uh, I'm lucky that I have friends that cook for me. Because Jeff, I don't think I'd be able to make spaghetti no, with vegan it's mince the either. The lack of love that does it. Yeah, and veggies. You need to and flavour anyway. Yeah. Yes. Just salt and garlic. I think is yeah. the key. All right, I'll At note least. that down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, another fun thing you could do instead of putting um, pasta in, you could use um, zucchini. In the oh, Jack does that. Yeah, you make it into uh, swirls. Yeah, but you it tastes delicious. I know you're giving yeah. us a weird death eyes <laughs> yeah. look. Ooh, give it a Don't go. Think that's yeah. okay. Don't think that's going to happen. Oh, oh okay. Uh, All right, what about you? So last night I didn't actually, to be honest, I didn't have dinner. I was going to say, did you have time for dinner? No, because I flew to Sydney last night or yesterday afternoon and um, and I appeared in Tonightly, the Tom Ballard with Tom Ballard. Um, you so were did very it. funny. Thank you. I missed it because we didn't have the bloody TV on. Yeah, I missed oh. it as well because I was on the plane when it went to air. But because they f- film it, um, my, they filmed my spot before so because I had to fly back so yeah. they, and then they dropped it in at the end of the show. Um, but filmed in front of the live audience, like one take, filmed live and then I left. Um, so kind of did that and then got on the plane. So And I thought, oh, I'll get dinner on the plane. And but they just had cheese and crackers. That is busy. Oh. What time? It was eight thirty. That's a bit harsh. That's still dinner time. Eight thirty. That's what I thought. Was it one of the budget airlines? No, it was. It was Qantas. I thought oh. Qantas always had to give you food. Yeah, they did. They gave us cheese, cheese and, and crackers. crackers. Did you get have a wine or anything? I sure did. Yeah. I had a nice glass of what? Well, it was, I had a, a glass of white wine, <laughs> and then um, and then they gave me another one. Without even asking, oh, they just they picked up the empty and then she just had the trolley, so she just pulled another one out and that's really awesome. Yeah, yeah. She must yeah. Have that's so good. Looked at your face. <laughs> <laughs> You've never had that, no. have you? Yeah. Hey, what do you think you have to do to get that? I have my face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think you just um like up if you sit up the back when they're just kind of they've done all every. I was right up the back. 
Yeah. And they were just kind of about to put the trolley away. I don't know. It's happened to me a few also, times. Also, I can't really? make eye contact with them. Or oh, because you're a bit worried. Yeah, because I have yeah. to hold the plane up with my mind. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. I actually read it anyway. Don't want to talk about that later. I read an interesting article about people who have to do that, Jeff. Yes. Oh, um, so you didn't have anything when you got home? No, because it was like... 11 o'clock by the time I That must home. have been a really Did you eat long day. Before you shot, like before the gig itself, or were uh, you too nervous? Yeah, too nervous. Had had a big breakfast. Yeah, right. Went out for breakfast. Oh, so, nice. Because um, I, I suspected that it might be... A long day. Yeah. So I had a big breakfast. And then when I when I got there, they were like, do you, do you want anything to eat? I'm like, oh, I'm too... I'm too nervous and stuff to, to do, eat. Do they so. have Do they have food there? Like is there like you know you know you see those Catering film sets where there's like stuff. a buffet, something like that. No, not there because it's in studio and stuff. So those other places there'd be catering and stuff. But also it's like every night and it's the ABC. Yeah, right. So there's there's no budget for food at the <laughs> ABC. A few biscuits, this <laughs> cafe. Yeah. Uh, lovely. What a lovely yeah. dinner. Well, thank you. <laughs> You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff, Geraldine and Sarah. Anthony Lowenstein is a journalist, commentator and writer responsible for many books, including a particularly good one called Left Turn, which he co-edited with me. Oh. <laughs> He's also now a filmmaker, having produced a documentary called Disaster Capitalism, accompanying his book of the same name. Welcome to Breakfasters, Anthony. Thanks for having me on. Uh, as I said, you've written a book called Disaster Capitalism, which is out through Verso and now made a film of the same name. What exactly is Disaster Capitalism? I think the best way to summarise it would be people making money for misery. So the book idea, um, which I started about six years ago and the film about the same time, was looking at people and corporations, mostly in developing countries but also in the West, um, who are making money from people's misfortune. So that could be through the refugee crisis, it could be through aid in Haiti, the war in Afghanistan, places like that. And obviously people have been making money from misery for a long time. That's not inherently new. What is new, though, I think, is the scale of it and often the multinational level of it. So in the film itself, we focus on three countries, Afghanistan, Haiti and Papua New Guinea. Could have chosen many other examples, but chose those as the best slash worst examples of what is happening, whether people making money, corporations from, as I said, the war in Afghanistan or why so much aid money is misspent and goes into corruption. And the film is not saying don't give aid. The film is saying that often aid is not going to the people who deserve it and need it, and we should ask why. Can you... Sorry, how are people making money? How are the big corporations, you know, where, how do they make their money? So a good example would be Haiti. So there was an awful earthquake in January 2010 mm-hmm. and uh, the US, which was then under President Obama, pledged about $10 billion to help the people of Haiti. US government officials went in there, corporations go in there pledging we're going to rebuild the broken electricity, for example. And the truth is that in most of those cases, the money that was pledged does not go to the Haitian people or Haitian companies or Haitian people. It goes often to American corporations. And I'm not saying that's by definition evil. I'm saying that you have to ask yourself after so many years, for example, why in Haiti the situation is still awful and broken. And too often I think the concept of aid which is not fully understood, I think, in the West, is that when a disaster happens or a war happens, often the contracts that are given out to help people under the guise of helping people actually is going to, for example, in Haiti, US corporations who are flying in and flying out, not training locals, not actually helping locals. So when people leave, which they inevitably do, 
the Haitians ask, well, my life is still pretty terrible. Where mm. is all this money going? And it's a massive industry. People make often money from misery, literally. There are some shocking statistics in the film. You point out that the US spent more money on aid reconstructing Afghanistan than it did reconstructing Europe after World War II. Yet Europe recovered from that devastating war surprisingly quickly, whereas, as you show in the footage in the, in, in the film, Afghanistan seems to be just getting poorer and poorer. Afghanistan is a really interesting example or, or an awful example where obviously most people will remember that after 9-11 the US goes in in October 2001 under the guise, I guess, of going after terrorism, destroying al-Qaeda, trying to kill bin Laden, none of which they did. Uh, and in the euphoria of the war, initially the Taliban fell very quickly. They were pretty much a motley kind of bunch of guys and the Americans in inverted commas won pretty quickly. But here we are 17 years later. It's the longest war in US history. The US has spent on reconstruction, so to speak, at least $120 billion. The war itself has cost at least a trillion and there's almost a stalemate. The US can't really win, in inverted commas, but the Taliban militarily can't win either. But the reality now is that you have, and we show in the film, so many examples of um, US government and contracting attempts to rebuild infrastructure. And some of it has happened. I've been there twice in the last years. There are some new roads, there are schools, there are some girls who go to schools who didn't go before. I'm not going to say nothing has changed, but we focus there just briefly on the uh, mineral sector. But most people don't realise that Afghanistan has got under the ground potentially up to $4 trillion of resources, copper, lithium, etc. And many US companies, not surprisingly, want to make money from that. And this was pushed by the Bush administration and the Obama administration. And now we have the great Donald Trump in power who wants to push it again as an argument to say, why can't we pay for our war with their resources? The same argument Trump made about the Iraq war was a disaster in his view, which is true, but why can't we take the oil and make money from it? That was what Trump said during the election campaign. So the resource sector in Afghanistan is mostly uh, undeveloped because the country is so violent and we wanted to focus on the example of showing that too often when the US gives money as aid, actually that money is not just in the aid that you and I imagine, helping a schoolgirl go to school or you know build a well or whatever it may be. It's actually things like helping US companies get access to the mining sector. That's defined as aid because under the guise of, well, if company X gets access to Afghan minerals, that'll give jobs to Afghans, which may happen in theory, but how do you... A, should you develop a mining sector in Afghanistan in the first place when, uh, and I asked this in the film and it's a mixed view, I mean, I don't think we should be mining at all <laughs> in terms of climate change issues, but a lot of Afghans would say, I agree with you. However, we need somehow to make money. We need somehow a way to sustain ourselves. And I'm not convinced personally that mining is the answer to that, by the way, but some Afghans do. So we look at that issue and it's a pretty grim picture. Are there alternatives to the way that this aid is is presented in countries and in disasters and natural disasters, if functioning alternatives? I think there are. I think that one of the things, and we talk about this in the film and I do in the book as well, is to say, and this is such an obvious thing to say, too often locals aren't actually asked what they want. Like, it sounds like an obvious thing. Like, why wouldn't you ask a person what they need or what they want? But too often you have a situation where it's partly kind of a neo-colonial mindset that people from the West come in and say, we know what you need. 
And sometimes, yes, there's much greater knowledge or ability to rebuild an electricity grid or a water supply, yes, that a maybe local Haitian company can't do. And But I think too often there is a unwillingness to listen to what locals want. And we say this in the film time and time and time again, that if you believe that you have all the answers to solving Haiti's problems, for example, and here we are eight years after the earthquake in 2010, the country has never been in worse shape. Poverty is, it's the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, which has been for a long time. Listen to what people want. Ask what they want. Not a crazy idea, but mm. too often aid groups are not doing that. Just quickly, there's some amazing footage from Afghanistan and you travelled to an area where the insurgency was still very strong. What was that experience like? It must be quite a frightening place to be a journalist. Yeah, it was scary. For just listeners, just briefly, so less than an hour from Kabul, Kabul's the capital of the country, there is the heart of the insurgency, which just shows people that although the US has been there for 17 years, that insurgency literally is on its doorstep. And insurgency means... Taliban, now ISIS is there. Um, we basically visited the area near called an INAC mine. The INAC mine is one of the largest untapped copper resources in the world, um, run by the Chinese. It's a mine that's never actually started mining, but the Chinese have rights to the area. And the locals who we met, they were village elders, um, had been displaced. They were facing violence from the Taliban, from ISIS, from the Afghan police. They were threatening to join the insurgency themselves because they were so frustrated. What was it like? It was really scary. I mean, Afghanistan as a journalist was the scariest place I visited other than Honduras. And um, mostly because you're not being targeted necessarily because it's me, Anthony Lowenstein, you're being targeted because you're a Westerner. You can be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, I was there with trusted people, trusted locals. In those sort of places, you have to go with a trusted local. You can't just drive there on your own. I mean, you could drive there on your own maybe, but you can't speak the language, you need access, you need assistance. And what was also a bit frustrating being there, and this is typical in Afghanistan as a male, you basically can't speak to women. Um, And as a female journalist, you would have more chance to speak to sometimes men and women. As a man, it was literally impossible in this village that I visited to speak to a woman. It's not, it's not like mm. like we wanted to speak to women, you know, just to ask what they thought about something, but the men who run the village, the village elders, won't allow you to even see women, let alone mm. speak to them. Mm. Um, it's just a reality you have to accept there. As a man, you can't get around that, and that was obviously frustrating. We wanted to speak to women, but we couldn't. Okay, the film is called Disaster Capitalism. The book of that name is out through Verso. People who want to see the film, best bet is to jump onto the website. It is disastercapitalismfilm.com. There's many more screenings coming. Uh, The film is being uh, released on TV around the world and hopefully SBS or ABC soon. We've been talking to Andrew Lodstein. Thanks very much. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR.